1: Today, we're going to talk about water, the oceans, threats, and hopefully solutions with two friends of the sea and also friends of Telberg, oceanographer Sylvia Earle and marine biologist Asha DeVos. Both are explorers, educators, and activists, and both are past winners of the Telbergs or current winners, I should say, past and current, of the Telbergs SNF Eliason Global Leadership Prize a physicist reminded me recently that water heats more slowly than solids, but also cools more slowly. So we spend lots of time talking about global warming. And what we're really usually thinking about is the the land, the the place where we live, Uh, which means we're not thinking enough about the 70% of the planet that is water. Uh, Sylvia, you were just at COP26, making the case for the oceans. Uh, So let's start with not solutions, but the problems. What are rising temperatures doing to the oceans? If you wanted to change the nature of life on Earth,
2: the two things you would do is change the temperature, change the chemistry. We're doing both. And it is not only altering life from our perspective, but all of life on Earth is affected go throughout history. There have been planetary phases of greater warmth and greater cold, but we have enjoyed a wonderful era, mostly during the last 10,000 years of relative stability, sure, with ups and downs, but with a gradual warming trend that through our actions, through putting excess carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, we're warming the planet at an accelerated rate with consequences to where life on Earth can live naturally or, and where they cannot. We're seeing it reflected in coral reefs that are declining in an unprecedented rate, like more than half are either gone or are experiencing significant decline largely, but not totally because of the warming temperatures Kelp forests that need cold water are also in trouble because of the warming trend. But it's that in combination with other actions, changing the chemistry through what we're putting into the ocean and also what we're taking out of the ocean. So it's not a simple answer, but (laughs) the bottom line is our impact on the planet is, is so great.
1: We're really changing the nature of nature. Um, Asha, your work, among other things, has focused on the blue whale. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: so you think you spend a lot of time thinking about the world, the planet from the fish's point of view, from from the whale's point of view. Um, what does it look like from their point of view? It's a silly question, but, it, but it's not.
3: No, I mean, it, you know, I think it, that's a really interesting question to put ourselves in in the shoes of these animals, so to speak, or the fins or the flippers, right? Um, But I think it is important for us to understand that we're changing the world and we always think of it from our perspective. How does it impact us? But we are part of nature, right? And and we have to stop trying to separate ourselves. And the minute we remember we're part of nature, then we can start to have that more empathetic view on what the world looks like. And, you know, the oceans are changing really rapidly. I mean, the oceans are warming, right? So that obviously has an impact on where the food might be that means these animals will have to shift their ranges as a result because these animals have to either migrate, adapt, or die, right? Like those are their options. So for a while, they might be able to adapt, uh, migrate. Maybe they can migrate small distances to get into the more comfortable ranges of the ocean. And then sometimes they may be able to adapt, but that's actually difficult when the temperatures are increasing at the rate that they are. And so the other thing we drive them to is death. But there's also other issues in our oceans, right? So if you think about the fact that whales see their world through their ears, right? And and we don't think about it that way. We go for a dive and we're like, oh, this is so meditative, right? It's so beautiful. There's colors, there's, there's all these, like you'll hear like snapping shrimp or all these beautiful sounds. But for an animal that actually uses their ears to navigate through that world, the acoustic pollution is something we don't really talk about because it's invisible to our eyes. And that's increasing as we're increasing shipping, which let's be honest, 90 percent of everything is shipped and we're all part of that problem. Right. So so that compounds it as well. Right. So their that, that hearing space is shrinking as a result of the increased noise in the oceans, the ships in the oceans, might strike these whales when they're swimming through trying to get to their food. Right. So we have ship strike problems so that the problems are vast. I mean, they get entangled in ghost nets that are floating through the oceans, pieces of nets that have broken off and are freely float, floating through. And these large animals are swimming and, you know, they they can't detect them sometimes because the monofilaments we use are so thin. So they can't actually even see them. Um, and so they get entangled in them and that can have its consequences. So, you know, as Sylvia says, it's really complicated. You know, we think about it. We can we think of a single problem. We talk about single problems, but we're thinking about an obstacle course. And that's where these animals live, a giant obstacle course. And everywhere they turn, there is something that can like, impact their lives. And that's something we really need to remember.
1: How late in the day is it? As you think about the ocean, Sylvia, you've been diving for a long time. You've seen the changes, you have felt the changes. Um, if, you were, if you were starting now, would you be afraid that it's, it's too late? No,
2: actually, I think this is the sweet spot in all of human history. Never before could we know what we now know. Never again. Well, we have a chance better than we now have armed with the knowledge that exists? When I began as a young oceanographer, no one had been to the deepest part of the ocean. No one had been high enough in the sky to see the whole world in context, to see how everything connects. We did not have the computer technologies that we now have to be able to share information, to connect the dots We literally have learned more since the middle of the 20th century than during all preceding human history about the nature of the ocean and why it matters to all of us everywhere all the time. With every breath we take, every drop of water we drink, we're connected to the ocean. We have not always appreciated that. But at the same time that we have learned more, we have literally lost more learning more and losing more can we learn enough fast enough to take stock and realize that maybe the biggest thing we learned in the 20th century and now into the 21st is the magnitude of our ignorance about the ocean about our place in the greater scheme of things but that we we now know more than ever before let's use that knowledge to forge a path forward that it really can secure a place for ourselves, along with blue whales and coral reefs and deep sea systems, forests and all the rest to appreciate. Our, we need the natural systems intact, not carved up and used as we have as a habit throughout all of our history, just using nature as, a, as products, as a source of free
1: goods. But at the same time, it seems that we, as as land-based animals, tend to think of the oceans as the way to solve the mess we've made on land. You've mentioned both implicitly industrial fishing and deep sea mining, both of which are thrown up as solutions to, air quotes on the word solutions, solutions to other problems.
3: I think the problem is that we have been... You know, quite disconnected from our oceans, right? So, if you think about it, right? If I if I was to tell you that there's a forest on fire just outside here, you have you may have never come to my neighborhood, but you have walked in a grove of trees, right? So you can understand what it would be like to if there was a fire and it was in that grove of trees, right? So, what we experience on land is something that's easier to communicate, and the ocean has just felt so far away, far removed from human beings right even though it's at our doorstep and i think that's been a real disadvantage for our oceans so i think one of the biggest challenges we have as ocean people is trying to first connect people to the ocean before we can ask them to be responsible and to have an you know like take care of it There's an inherent fear in a lot of communities. Uh, For example, you know, in Sri Lanka, it's a beautiful tropical island. Before I wanted to become a marine biologist at 18, nobody was a marine biologist. People thought I was crazy, right? I thought they were crazy because obviously it's an island, right? But the point is, that connection was very much dependent on the economy. It was dependent on fishing, right? So fishermen went to fish in the ocean and came back, but it wasn't used as a recreational space. And this is not uncommon. So I think one of the big challenges we have before we even can like delve into these threats is like, how do we connect people to the ocean? How do we make sure that they know that just because it's out there, it's keeping us alive. As Sylvia said, you know, one in every second, every second breath we take is produced in the ocean right that's breathe one breathe twice that's it thank you ocean right so i think there is definitely um work to be around done around that that connection that we can bring and i think that has allowed people to feel very um that 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 disconnect is why people just feel like it's just out there it's this you know infinite source of fish and and, and a garbage dump and that's just how we've treated it up to now. And that's a very, very unfortunate unfortunate place to be for us. But as Sivya says, well, we are in the sweet spot in history. It is totally up to us to make a difference. It's totally up to us to use the science that's now available and start moving and trying to drive that change.
2: Asha, you're, mm. you're, you're, you're spot on about if you don't know, you can't care. Yeah. You might know and not care, but if you simply are oblivious to something, (laughs) it's very difficult to take action. But again, I think the good news that millions, literally millions of divers have begun to bring the message back about life in the sea, Mm -hmm. that it's the greatest abundance, greatest diversity of life is out there in the ocean. It's 99% of the living space on earth because that's where most of the water is. And it's hard to to, to understand that if we just look at the surface of the ocean, the average depth is 4,000 meters. How many people have been 4,000 meters in the ocean? I'm one of the lucky ones to have done so. And all of us, however, can share the view of the handful of people who have descended to the ocean's greatest depths, 11,000 meters, and have reported back and documented, it's alive all the way from the the top, not only to the bottom of the ocean, but wherever the water trickles down beneath the bottom of the ocean to more than a kilometer, there is life. Most of it's not as big and spectacular as blue whales, (laughs) but it's living material anyway and absolutely. We're, we're all connected I, I love the fact that your work with blue whales is drawing attention to their plight
3: mm-hmm.
2: and what we can do to turn things around not just for their sake but mm-hmm. but for ours absolutely Thank
3: just you. just
1: to scale things asha how big is a blue whale
3: a blue whale is as long as a soccer, as a basketball court, right? So, and its tongue is as heavy as an African elephant. I always think that's the fun fact. But here's the even more fun fact: is that you know a lot of people have a lot of fear around this blue whale because it is a giant. But you know they have comb-like structures in their mouth, right? They're baleen whales. They filter feed their food. Their esophagus is so small that they would choke on a loaf of bread, right? So they're beautifully designed just to feed on the tiny things in our oceans, which I think is the most remarkable thing. The largest animal to ever roam our planet has become that large by feeding on some of the smallest things in our oceans. And I think that's pretty magic.
1: Would you recognize a great leader if you met one? Today, you're listening to two women who, by any definition, qualify for that sobriquet. To meet other great leaders, people who are global, ethical, creative and courageous winners of the Telberg snf elias and global leadership prize please join us on december 8th at 10 a.m eastern standard time at TelbergFoundation.org or join the live stream on our youtube channel for celebration of great leadership let's talk about some political magic um, cop 26 most of the headlines have been about coal and about methane and about keeping 1.5 alive, which is a nice bumper sticker, but it would help with some action. Um, but Sylvia, you were there advocating for the oceans and with some very specific proposals. Um, so what, who should do what in order to sustain the oceans uh, and, and even better to reverse some of the damage that's been done in, in recent decades? It was
2: encouraging that at COP26 with climate scientists, leaders, participants from all over the world, that nature was in the discussion, the living world, not just rocks and water, not just the atmospheric scientists who have dominated the discussion about climate up until, well, right about now, the Paris meeting where the, the accord to really pull nations together to address climate change. It was the first time that the ocean really made an appearance in the discussions, which is curious because now we know that the ocean drives, governs climate.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. It isn't just shifting water of different temperatures around. that shapes the climate. It isn't just the amount of water that goes into the atmosphere because of well, driven largely by differences in temperature. It's the living ocean. Economists tend to follow the money. (laughs) Climate scientists are really waking up to the importance of following the carbon. Carbon. Where's the carbon? It's in the trees. Carbon-based units. Well, we are carbon-based units, too. All life requires carbon. And we now are beginning to appreciate that Maintaining carbon's intact through photosynthesis, carbon is captured, food is generated, oxygen is generated, and soil is a place where much of the carbon generated by the photosynthetic organisms where it winds up. But it also winds up in living creatures, the birds, the the trees themselves, all living things, the insects, in the ocean. was there At the world economic forum in 2020 when the international monetary fund released their study about the value of whales for their carbon capture and sequestration putting the ocean seriously on the balance sheet they put a number on it as economists would whales today worth more than a trillion dollars in terms of carbon benefits so what else is there? Uh, I mean, Asha, you describe uh, about how you had an awakening when you were diving the waters around Sri Lanka where whales were doing what all
1: animals do.
3: Yeah.
1: <laughs> you, you, you were swimming in, in whale you need to sh- You need to share this, yes. You yeah, so uh,
3: my, my fun fact, for everyone out there is that my career started with a pile of whale poop. And I want everyone to remember. And if you're wondering what color blue whale poop is, it is actually this color. So that's my, my 75th fun fact for today. So just just so you know, in this like, you know, almost half an hour, Sylvia and I have already sprouted out so many fun facts. You can just imagine how much more there's out there, right? Which is why we want all of you on board. But the reason Sylvia brought up um, my penchant for whale poop, Particularly in the context of the oceans and and what a difference it can make is because we don't think about I mean you know people used to often come to me and be like oh you you work with whales because they're charismatic and beautiful right and I would be like no that just does them a disservice it's like telling someone oh you're pretty but you have nothing else to offer the world right which is probably one of the cruelest things you can ever do, right? But these whales are what we call ecosystem engineers. So their, their survival is so integral to the proper functioning of the entire ecosystem. And there's two fun ways that they are really contributing to the proper functioning of our oceans. So the first one I will bring up is whale poop. Um, So what happens with these whales is they dive to the depths to feed and they feed in places where there are nutrients like iron and nitrogen that you don't find in the surface waters, right? And it's these dark places where you and I can't go because it's just so deep. They'll feed, they'll feast, then they'll come up. And as they come up, they'll poop right? So they release these giant fecal plumes, which are just the fertilizer of the oceans. And at the surface, we have these tiny microscopic plants, the phytoplankton, that are just floating on our surface of the oceans. And they're just waiting to sort of feast on some sunshine, a little bit of these nutrients that have just been brought up and all these other ingredients. And then they photosynthesize and they release release oxygen. And that's the oxygen we've been talking about, that you and I breathe. There's so much of it is produced. And some of it at least is fertilized by these whales in the ocean, right? But then the other fun thing that they do for us is As Sylvia mentioned, right? We all capture carbon in our bodies, but whales are gigantic. They're really huge, and animals that live long accumulate more carbon in their bodies over time. So some whales can live, you know, hundreds of years, like bowhead whales, and in general, whales can live quite long. So they're accumulating a lot of carbon over a long period of time in large bodies. And when they die, their carcasses, first of all, are a feast to the surface, but then they start to sink and they go to the depths, this is called whale fall. And as it goes to the depths, not only does it provide food for, you know, the species that are down there that we, some of them, we don't even know what they are. But apart from that, they're also removing this excess carbon from the atmosphere and taking it down to the depths of our oceans where it's trapped, right? So they're actually helping us buffer against the worst impacts of climate change. They're playing a role. And that's one of the big things that has come out. Um, As Sylvia was mentioning, we're finally talking about nature-based solutions. We're finally realizing that the ocean, which is 70% of our planet, I mean, obviously, it's doing something. But it's doing a disproportional amount of good for us right now. And we need to stop just depending on it. To save us, We need to start thinking about what else can we do, but we have to rec- recognize restoring these wild places and spaces and making sure that they can come back to what they were before, you know, all this industrial fishing, commercial whaling, all the extraction we've done before that. If we can slowly start to take care of spots, parts of our ocean, that's when we're going to start to see real change. It's not just we think about technology as a, me- a mechanical thing that we have to build to sort of. Prevent us from you know whizzing past one and a half degrees, but um, you know we to accelerate next zero. We have to recognize that nature is also technology, and it's providing amazing functions and uh, opportunities for us to make a difference and do better if we just kind of stop interfering and let it just do its job. So when you take a whale
2: out of the ocean, which we've been doing Mm -hmm. through most of our history, their carbon. It's released as carbon dioxide and methane, and we also leave a space in the ocean broken this tightly knit system that has been developing over hundreds of millions of years. It's taken all preceding history to develop a world that is basically favorable to us, and it's taken us four and a half decades, largely, mostly, to unravel those systems. In a couple hundred years, we've, we've done more damage than during all preceding history, but the pace has picked up. So, Ausha, if, okay. if this justification for keeping whales in the ocean is logical, it seems that it is,
0: mm-hmm.
2: should it not, not also apply to tuna and krill? and cod and herring and all other forms of life that are carbon-based units because when we take them out of the ocean, it goes into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide and methane. And when we consume those creatures similarly, we're burning that energy, but we release the carbon dioxide, the carbon that was in the fish or shrimp or whatever it is that we extract. So we have not only, taken so much out of the ocean and turned it into CO2 and methane, we've broken these vital links, these nutrient links. When we take, as we have, on the order of 90% of the sharks, also long-lived creatures, also with a role in capturing and holding carbon and ultimately taking it to the bottom of the ocean. And like whales, they poop. (laughs) And so do the krill, you know, it's, it's just the way life works. Birds on the land used to fertilize the land when they made their long migrations. and Well, they still do to some extent, but nothing like when the land really enjoyed populations of wild creatures to a far greater extent than now exist. We see the damage on the land. We have not really, until right about now, begun to appreciate that we need whales alive And tunas and swordfish and krill, a lot more than we need them. Dead, as products.
1: So Sylvia, to draw to underline that point, you are advocating the abolition of industrial fishing
2: on the high seas, in particular, because there's no indigenous fishing in the high seas. Literally, this is half of the world, the area beyond the the exclusive economic zones that nations have declared as, as theirs. The whales don't know where we establish political boundaries. The tunas don't know. They range widely. Imagine if we just safeguarded the true blue heart of the planet, the area beyond national jurisdiction that goes from the land out 200 miles as people <laughs> measure their jurisdiction. It would, and, and then in the rest to really manage our behavior, safeguard critical areas, such as where we know that that tuna get together and hoop it up and do what it takes to make more tuna, protect those areas, or grouper, and certainly whales, Mm -hmm. and to look at the areas where they concentrate their actions to feed. Why would we want to interrupt them when they're doing what it takes to,
1: to, again, to derive their sustenance. Um, the argument is clear. The question, and you were just at Glasgow with COP26, there was an agreement to protect 30% of the global ocean, uh, which doesn't seem very much, but I'll put that as a question. Is, is that enough of protection? And, and is there any teeth to it? Or is it just, to quote Greta, more blah, blah, blah? <laughs> it's both.
2: <laughs> it is. Uh, Ellen, The 30% of the land and sea fully or highly protected is a good start. Uh, Our friend Ed Wilson at at Harvard, notable ant man, but a big thinker, suggests that at least half of the world must be safeguarded. So imagine trying to live your life with half a heart. The blue heart of the planet is the ocean. Is 30% enough? We used to aim for 10%. We're now at 3% highly and fully protected. I guess you could say that more is protected by inaccessibility, such as areas under the ice in Arctic areas. It's hard to get for fishermen to get there, for miners to get there. But we're, we're, we're quickly really taking over the entire planet with our access to any place in the coastal waters and now even into the deepest parts of the sea. to to use the ocean as a source of goods. We call them resources. It's that notion that everything in nature is to be used for us. And I say the most important thing that we extract from the ocean is our existence. We live because there's an ocean out there that is still, still operating, not nearly as effectively as it was when I was a child or 100 years ago or 500 years ago, but we still have the best chance we will ever have to do exactly what Asha suggests, to pr- protect areas, large areas, to safeguard these processes by safeguarding the species
1: that drive the processes. Were there any positive outcomes for the oceans uh, out of Glasgow? and the corollary that is also being asked is is the Greta question, I guess. Um, are those just statements, or are, are there actual actions that um, governments have committed to taking that would begin to do, Sylvia, what you just suggested, and Asha, what, what you've also described?
2: The fact that nations really got together to face up to a problem that that affects all of us and all of life on earth was certainly a positive move. As to outcomes, I guess the jury is out. We'll have to see in six months, a year, whatever, have nations, have people, have corporations, have individuals taken the message to heart and responded with tangible action. There is no formal um, <laughs> what guarantee that nations will behave themselves in the way that they suggest is, is necessary. But the fact that we at least are facing up to the problem, but we do need to scale up and speed up responding to the problems that we now
1: know are really threatening everything we care about. Uh, do we have the technologies we need to make the changes that you th- you want to see, that we need to see? Asha
3: Yeah, so what I would say is um, one of the I want to point out first, we talk about thirty by thirty, but things targets like that are wonderful. But I would like to point out that the problem is enforcement, right? Like, how do you ensure that you can declare a place a protected area, but how do you ensure that it is being protected? The implementation of that protection of that area or that area that's set aside, right? Like, that's kind of been our failing up to now. We've had a lot of targets and goals over the years, but we haven't necessarily considered, like, once you declare a place at something, then what do we do, right? How do we make sure it happens? And so, well, you know, Technology can help in some places, but really the ocean is this wild, wild west, right? It's this giant, you know, the tragedy of the commons. It's huge. It's out there. And so how do you monitor what happens? Now, if I think about Sri Lanka, for example, and I'm sure there's a lot of people in the audience who identify with this. For us, if you think about territorial waters, it's 12 nautical miles, right? We, have, we don't even have the capacity to really monitor that 12 nautical ma- mile band around our country, but we have jurisdiction of eight times more ocean area than that area that goes out to 200 nautical miles. So how do we manage these resources in spaces where we can't actually have an eye all the time, right? So there is technology developing, certainly using satellites, for example, there are ways to uh, monitor uh, ships, fishing vessels, um, these industrial fleets but you know they also find loopholes so it's this constant game right of cat and mouse like trying to be one step ahead of with the technology but the thing with industrial fishing is you know, as Sylvia points out, it's the high seas fishing that's really problematic because it's a no man's land. That's what we have to remember. It doesn't it doesn't come under anyone's jurisdiction. So there's no one who can really govern what's going on out there. It's not it's not within the waters of Sri Lanka. It's not within the waters of the U.S. So these our countries can't say, no, you can't go and fish out there. And then there's problems of inequity. Right. Who the countries that can fish in these areas are the ones that are highly subsidized by the governments. And they, they will have uh, the technology to go out there, and those are areas that belong to all of us. Do we have the technology? We're developing the t- technology. Um, there are some tools, but we need more if we really want to be able to protect those areas beyond where our drones can fly or where our, you know, our research vessels can go. Um, the cost of kind of observing and monitoring these areas is also huge. So how do we come up with technology that can, you know? overcome those hurdles and obstacles as well.
1: But what you're both saying is that these are global issues and global spaces and we live in a nation state world. Um and those there's there is no governance out there. There is no way to enforce these rules out there. I agree with Asha that the
2: illegal, unregulated and unreported fishing, you know, that's that's a serious problem. But the bigger problem is what we legally allow and we legally enforce both with the international law of the sea treaty and with our separate governance through our respective countries, we actually pay people to go out and kill wildlife from the ocean on an industrial scale The the Subsidies that Asha recognizes—that's—it's it, just in a way we're facilitating the destruction of of, the, of our life support system. The ocean keeps us alive, and it would seem perversely that we have we have developed policies that accelerate the problems that we're now facing. So those laws, those beliefs those approaches to how do we treat the ocean were really largely put into place when the world was a different place. You know, the world that I knew as a child doesn't exist anymore. The, The tragic loss of wild places, wild species on the land and now certainly paralleling that in the ocean And and oblivious to the attention of most people. They don't see it. They don't understand it. But it's coming into focus. That's the good news. And the fact that today there are more blue whales than when I was a child. Why? We got to the point where we understood that we could kill all of them. We have the power to do that. Not just blue whales, but all of the great whales were vulnerable to our actions. Technology exists to annihilate them. We stopped for a number of reasons, but the fact is that we did stop, at least on a deliberate scale of commercially extracting them, but that hasn't stopped us from killing them, but at least by putting a moratorium on the commercial extraction of whales, we gave them a break. Imagine if we did the same thing for other Animals that we take on a large scale basis, and that also are at a point where if we don't stop, if we don't change, they too will just disappear. Bluefin tuna in the Pacific, the number is about 3% of what was there in the 1970s. We're really good at killing them and, and consuming them, but not good yet at understanding why their value alive transcends their value dead.
1: Asha, I've seen you uh, talk about a ship that dropped a lot of plastic on the on the beach near where you work uh, in Sri Lanka. Uh, How do we solve the plastic problem? Is it soluble?
3: Yeah, so I mean, that's a great question. And just as background, so people know, you know, in May this year in Sri Lanka, we faced the biggest marine environmental disaster there was a ship just 10 kilometers off our west coast that caught fire and spilled you know thousands of uh container loads of these nurdles, right these tiny plastics primary plastics that are like five millimeters the little pebbles and you know the most striking i mean they're still circulating around uh, around the island we're doing we've got particle tracking models we're trying to understand like are they you know are they a absorbing chemicals as they float through the ocean what does that mean for ingestion by other species so it's it's quite complex but you know what i fundamentally want people to know i mean people were angry right like people were angry when they saw these plastics but my message to people was we need to change our consumption because these tiny plastics make up everything else that we use right they're the basic building block of every other kind of plastic so we can be upset but these tiny nurdles exist because of us As consumers, if we continue to use every kind of plastic out there, they're going to keep manufacturing it. There's no reason to stop. There's a there's a market for it. So we have to recognize that. And then we have to start really thinking about, okay, single use plastics are unnecessary. Right. So how do we there are alternatives? There's plenty of alternatives and they're available. It's just about being conscious. And I think with all of these problems, recognizing that we have a role to play as individuals, as much as we can ask for policy changes at the top, um, is really, really important.
2: If I could just add to that, that on the order more than half of the plastic stuff that's in the ocean is a consequence of fishing. So if you know that, you know, that's... Asha, you know, isn't that the biggest problem, not knowing? You started your comments by saying it's ignorance. If people could see it, if they could understand the connections, we almost wouldn't need the laws because people would see that really matters. My life is at risk. Hurting the ocean hurts me. And what we're doing to the planet as a whole is a terrible legacy. For our children, grandkids, I have four grandchildren and I care deeply about what they are inheriting because of what I and all of those who are currently on the planet are doing to make our lives, you know, (laughs) whatever, prosperous, if you will. But at the cost that we haven't really accounted for, we need to do that now.
3: And that's a really key thing. We always talk about these big blanket you know policies that you know are for the world but they don't work like that. Different places have different problems and that need to be addressed very locally with a very local mindset. And so to me it's about that inclusivity as well about how do we share this information so that everybody gets the chance to engage. How do we make sure that every coastline, every person on the planet has the chance as Sylvia and I have reiterated over and over again today is like If people know that, I tell you, I have so much faith in humanity. I know that if people know, they will want to make a difference. Unfortunately, up to now, most people don't know. And so they don't have the privilege of making that choice, the right choice. And I want to give humanity that and say that I think there's a lot we can do.
2: Sylvia, if I can just add my two cents quickly, that no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And I think it, we all, every one of us should look in the mirror and figure out what's what's our superpower. What can we do that is special to us? Because all of us can do something that's special. Yes, there are real problems, but if you drown in, in the problems, it will be a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, we have to take the good news, build on that, and get to this better place that we know is possible. If we are to survive and thrive as a species on this blue miracle of a planet in a universe that is really unfriendly to the likes of us, we must embrace nature, all of it, the rest of the living world, treat them, all of these creatures, land and sea, with dignity and respect, and to understand, we must do this. Treat, treat the ocean as if your life depends on it, because
1: it does. Thank you.
3: Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, Sylvia. Thank,
0: Thank you. you. Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation.